Hello stackers, this is Rhett. I'm the Dungeon Master for Stack of Dice, and we are continuing our ongoing World Builders series, and today I'm really excited to share some time with a good friend who has come to us through the show, and uh, I guess it's been years, <laughs> that's hard to believe. I am excited to introduce Jonathan. Hello, I'm Jonathan. Four years ago. Yeah, that's hard to believe. <laughs> Why don't you talk to us a bit, Jonathan, about your background? Where have you come from? Uh, what brought you to the game? And uh, tell us a little bit about your creative background. I will start with my creative background. I I am a musician. I've played piano since I was six. I've been in multiple bands, volunteered at the church quite a bit, written songs, and I will always be a lifelong musician. I will always be making music. And I think that's important to note because that's a lot of how I play my Dungeons and Dragons games. It's like a bunch of friends getting together for a jam session. Mm. And so each instrument is featured in various ways. And um, that's a lot of the way I run my my games as a dungeon master. I first came to the game pretty late considering I'm not one of the old guard, but I, uh, <laughs> and, and I even came to late for fifth edition, to be honest. But 2018, I started playing I had gotten let go of a very busy job. So I went from working 80 hours a week to zero hours a oh week. Boy. And I was on a little bit of a severance. So I had three months to explore. And me and the kids bought a game called Dragonwood. It's a game of dice and daring by Game Right. And as we were rolling the dice and flipping the cards, I couldn't help but wonder, what's the backstory behind this troll? Hmm. Or, or even trying to interpret the dice to mean other outcomes. And... A thought popped in my head, and I think I may have seen something on YouTube or I don't know, maybe in just pop culture, uh, that Dungeons and Dragons operated like that. So I researched D&D, found 5th edition, bought the starter set, and uh, brutally put my kids through the first adventure. <laughs> they very graciously uh, welcomed me as the Dungeon Master. <laughs> um, my favorite story to tell is, uh, as I was struggling as a, as a young DM, I set the scene uh, right out of Cragmaw Cave or something like that. And I described the opening of the cave as being full of mud with a uh, mud-like smell. And a, a the mud had a muddy mud quality to it. <laughs> and the kids just looked at me like, wow, this is riveting. Of course, they all laughed. And I realized, <laughs> realized that my descriptions needed a little bit of help. So that kind of <laughs> reminded me that I always loved creative writing. So I started reading more. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing in between sessions. And that got me thinking about Bonsaro. Okay. And so Bonsaro is, it, yeah, it's your world. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about that world? Well, let's see. Uh, I'll start with the, the name. When I was a child, um, probably about three to four years old, my parents said that I would suddenly get this burst of energy. I'd run through the hallway and then go smack headfirst into the nearest wall. <laughs> I pick myself up off the ground and I just like rage roar. And I think my dad said that was like a bonsai ah. energy or something. And um, so I was nicknamed bonsai John <laughs> and uh, that didn't stick too much. It was mostly early childhood. I, I became pretty meek, mild, quiet. And I feel like D and D has brought out a little bit more of that bonsai energy in me. So uh, Bonsaral does have its root in that meaning, but what it literally means is the land that lives. And so hmm. in the universe, the gods created all these static worlds and they decided they wanted to 
they wanted to do a collaborative project. They wanted to set aside their differences and work together, even with um, elementals and even fiends that were not their allies, but their enemies. And so they set out to make a world that was completely full of life and 100% a collaboration project across the universe. And that's what Bansara is. And the, the, um, the hallmark of those creations are the mortals, the humans that are kind of a, uh, kind of seen as a, we'll, we'll see if this works. I mean, wouldn't it be wild if we just created a bunch of these human creatures and we gave them this free will and power of the gods? I mean, that'd be crazy, right? That actually happened to the horror of the dwarves. Uh, the gods went through with it and created this race of humans that um, could accomplish great feats. Hmm. And that creates the adventures in Bonsaro. Well, great. And as you went through the process, we'll talk more about the world itself here in just a moment. But as you began to flesh it out, what about your world? As, as you got to thinking about actually making it playable for your characters, for, your, uh, for the people that would be sharing it with you, what kinds of things did you take into account? What did you want to have in it? Uh, to be honest, I started out like developing a system based off of 5e's rules, like maybe with magic, for example, and just following the player's handbook. But one thing I feel like I've evolved to in the game is giving players a chance to stretch beyond their character sheets. So for example, Cure Wounds is an automatic spell. And if you're familiar with 5e Dungeons and Dragons, you know that if you just lay your hands on someone, you cast Cure Wounds, it works. Mm -hmm. What I think Bonzaral offers is that there are chances in which Cure Wounds does not work, or it requires something else to work, uh, a conduit or a sacrifice or mm. uh, extra time. And so the nature of magic in Bonzarel is not fickle, but it is contingent upon, uh, it's not dependable. Yeah, it's not fickle, but it is not completely 100% dependable until you discover what Energia wants, the magic wants. So the magic can be very personified as if you were trying to negotiate with someone. Mm. So in Bonzarel, you can have a, it's like having a relationship with a friend. It, it requires, it's not completely... It's not predictable. There are many factors involved. So one of the okay. characters I have now is um, a star seeker. And so I'm kind of playing with the idea that magic changes with the seasons as well. Ah, And do you have mechanics for this? Did you go through the work, the process of actually drafting up here's mechanically how it works? Yes. Nice. And currently play testing it, but a lot of it works with um, maybe an example, um, star magic. If you draw your energia from the stars, uh, sometimes there's a lag. So if you cast the spell, and there's dice involved too, um, the player casts a spell, but you then have to roll the dice check to see if that star magic is going to work now or later. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, there might be some delay. So, and and that is not a I, what I, in a game that's not a mechanic that I'm going to implement in the game throughout because that's just it's a lot of work and it creates a different game. But yes, what it, it does. does allow me to do is provide story points or plot points. Gotcha. And I try really hard to communicate that to the players. For example, cure wounds, you know, for the most part it works, but a lot of times I might describe a setting in which, you know, you notice that the magic feels a little off here or uh, you read a book promises you that sometimes magic doesn't work. And so I try to give players foreshadowing 
So they know when I pull the rug out from underneath their feet, they're not completely knocked off. Yeah, that's really the the key right there. Uh, first of all, you've discussed it with your players, and that's helpful. And that they have bought into it is also helpful. Um, and I think that's an important aspect. And I, you've always been a very mindful dungeon master in our four years of getting to know each other. I, I've appreciated the carefulness of your approach in putting games and world together. Mm, good. But I think that is... Another thing I try, I think that Bonzarel is unique in is the first thing I set out to do was develop the timeline of the history. And so within that history, I included things like a a worldwide flood. I included the rise and fall of empires. Um, I included lost cities. Mm -hmm. So I tried to draw a lot from mythology and even our own history of things that happened because that's, if that's our stories, you know, and so it's very personal to us when an empire rises and falls and then divides into four factions. And, and then that's the reason things are the way they are. And something I'm really trying to work hard on is developing folklore and legends to explain why things the way, the way they are and leave that, le- that element of mystery within the world that not everything is discovered and there's some room for wonder. Great. Yeah. And that, uh, that's, that's a fun aspect of world building because it gives you license to create more to make it deeper, richer, more full feeling, more lived in. And uh, I think that's ultimately, it can be a draw for players. Now there are players that uh, maybe look at that and think, I have to know all this stuff to play. <laughs> so uh, the, the thing is, I think you do a good job of revealing it over time. There's no homework necessary to, uh, to get into the game. <laughs> but it becomes part of the growth process. You, you, along with your character, are growing in knowledge of this imaginary world as as you gain experience and levels. Well, on the note of homework, too, to be really honest, I think I've drawn a lot of this from my players. And there's so many times that during a game, a player will say something through their character, and I'll just write down one word. <laughs> and later that night, I'll just expand upon that idea. And I, I promise you, I've done that. I know I've done that with you before <laughs> playing with you as a player and, and other players in the game, they'll say something and I'll think, wait a second, what is behind there? So that I feel like that's my enjoyment of the game is that that's, that's the part where I get to be a player. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I've told my players, that's what I really look forward to when they throw me a curveball and all my careful planning and note-taking has gone out the window. That's it, it's daunting uh, to be treading water in fathoms deep water but uh, at the same time it's where dungeon masters actually get to play uh, because now you're reacting you're making things up and who knows what's going to come out of your mouth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's i mean it's an honor and a privilege and a blessing to spend the days just i mean i, I do you look look at my my documents i have so much developed and every once in a while i'll text a player or say hey um Remind me again, what color is this? What color is that? Uh, where did you get this? And because I'm doing all this homework on myself, now the players themselves might not ever reach this other place or to meet this other person. But I think the process of over-preparing a world, having the answers will come in handy because you don't know when the players are going to knock on the door mm-hmm. and ask the question. But if you if if I've done my homework as a dungeon master in developing that setting, I know where everything is and I can recall it quickly. Yeah, that, that's the hope. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I guess my question for you, and this this is, I think, not uncommon for DMs everywhere. What is the balance between preparation and improvisation? 
What is your experience? So I think, I think there are in a very broad stroke, there are two types of DMs. There's the, the preparers and then there's the improvisers. And I would avoid the extreme of any of those. If I find myself saying, like, I just wing everything, I make up things on the spot, I would be worried that I'm not doing my part to prepare a world mm-hmm. for the players to engage in. But if I find myself prepping so much and not leaving room for improvisation, I would also worry about that. So right. I, I think it's really, I mean, I think it's 50-50. I mean, I think you have to, pre- I have to prepare something. And I know I have to prepare more than the session requires. Yeah. So what does your preparation look like as you get ready for a game? You know, do you take copious notes? I'm interested in what your DM's notes actually look like. The first thing I do is I repeat this thing. Players' actions create the adventure. And so I think about what did the players do last session? Mm-hmm. Their choices. And then I ask myself, how can I make this into an adventure? So the initial adventure that I start the world in, I have to come up with all that. I have to set up all the incidents, the events, the happenings, the call to action. I have to jumpstart the adventure. But once the players start doing things in the world, I try really hard to take their actions and then connect, make that into an adventure. And if I have an adventure, kind of like an encounter prepared ahead of time, like, oh, it'd be really cool if they had like a, a troll chase them through the forest. I might have that mechanically set up. I know what traps the troll is going to bring. I know what the troll wants. But I don't know when that's going to happen. Once the players do something in the world that warrants a troll chase, I'll connect that to the next session. Gotcha. Yeah, I try to remember that. And then with that in mind, then I go forth and I write a narrative introduction. I think that for me kind of gets me in the idea that this is a big story. And so for me, it's a recap. And one thing I've started doing is allow the players to participate in that recap. Mm. Every session, I'll call on one player. Yeah, and I've noticed that with uh, with your bookish and the brave series, and we'll we'll talk more about your projects uh, closer to the end of this episode. Uh, but yeah, I like how it's not just a recap where let's just talk about what happened last time. It's actually worked into the story. So you have Hawkins reading from his journal or uh, things like that, where the players get a chance to be creative in how they do it. And don't you know? I mean, Red is. It's just amazing because I can experience the same thing and tell the story through my interpretation. And then this character named Hawkins can go through that same experience with a completely different story. It, I mean, it, it's not, not, not completely unfactual, but it's just a different angle. It's a different perspective. That's right. That's right. And uh, that opens, again, your eyes to possible story points. He may have seen things that you didn't even think about at the time. And, uh, and then that opens doors for you for, well, he really keyed in on this. Um, maybe I should do something with that. So I, I absolutely see good in having the players take part in the recounting uh, because it's good for them it, for multiple reasons. It, it reinforces the story in their minds, but again, it gives you ideas for other things. I, I think that's a great way to do it. Uh, so in your world, are you, out of curiosity, have you gone with the going large down to small or small up to large? Did you start off with a very specific area and you're working outward from that? Or did you start with the world in general and then you're working down into specific areas? I started with a small town, a few people, and then expanded out towards that. So there are gaps too. So I might've started in one town and then the characters journeyed to the far mountains. Mm -hmm. 
then I developed those mountains. But I, I know that there's probably something in between that small town and those mountains. But I think only in those out of, I guess, the four years of playing, it's only like this last year that I've decided to develop a map that I could give to the players and say, this is what the, this continent looks like that you're on. That's right. And uh, you shared some of that with me. And as I'm heading towards appearing in uh, your current game, and that's exciting for me, uh, but it definitely helps to cement in my mind where everything is. Cause I'm sure when you're describing it, we all have <laughs> a different mental map of exactly where everything is in relation to everything else. Uh, so it's definitely helpful and I think that's been one of the challenges with podcasting. We, we made a conscious decision at the outset of Stack of Dice to use visuals and maps as little as possible because then it forces us to try and relate the things in a way that hopefully is clear. <laughs> but I, I can tell from the confused looks on players' faces every now and then that I'm just not getting the picture <laughs> across. And that's challenging. Yeah. And I think that's an exercise good exercise to to reconcile the images that we have in each other's minds through words yes yeah absolutely and uh you know you as a i know many times you've expressed your love for literature and for creative endeavors you know that's that's good for us as dungeon masters to uh to take a look at how do we convey our thoughts how can i do it better it's a constant improvement if you're taking the the job seriously you're always looking at ways to improve how you convey things, how you spice things up and make them interesting. So that's one of the many, many reasons that I like this game. It, it really forces you to improve constantly. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. What about challenges? What are things that you have faced in your world building endeavors that have been challenging for you? Uh, I, think, I think developing maps was a big challenge. I could never settle on what the continent looked like or how much of the world, because once I started with a single town and then expanded on that, it was tempting to continue going and going until I had explored the entire world. And that was exhausting and very frustrating. So if I could go back and tell myself a year ago, just, hey, just go as far as you know they can travel within a day. Uh, you don't have to develop the history of every empire uh, throughout the history, because in the story, the players have reached past the Industrial Revolution. And so much of the world is developed. So there's a lot of history that's not been told and it was tempting and frustrating to try to answer all of those. Yeah. Um, and that's, you've hit upon an important point and, and one that I, I think I have relied on to keep my sanity throughout this podcast series. And that is what I, what I call the rendering effect. So in computer games to save resources, computers only load what is important and immediately necessary for the game to work. And so, so you don't have, like in Minecraft, it, it only shows within a certain range of you everything. Uh, and that way the computer's not wasting resources. And it's, it's the same thing, I think, with us. We, we can have a general notion of this area over here and over here. But if it's beyond that, then you know what? We just need to uh, let that come when, it, when the players get there. Because you find yourself dumping time and effort into building up this place and making sense of it only to find that they never go there. Uh, that can be really draining. You know, another challenge has been developing an economy that makes sense. Mm. And I, I think that just links into, um, I, I generally don't do the best with numbers. I have a hard time. 
I have been accused once or twice of adding zeros to numbers. And <laughs> I am right there with it's you. It's <laughs> just so arbitrary. And like, I, 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 it's not that I'm trying to deceive anybody. Uh-huh. I, I don't do well with explaining monies and economy. And so that's, that's not been frustrating. It's just, it's just shown of really big weakness and mm-hmm. undeveloped strength in my life. My fix for that was to, I had an accountant in one of my games once, and I just did a collaborative session with him just to set up a gold piece system that makes sense that, that I could use on the fly in the game. So I could say how much a hotel costs or how much it costs to travel across the country. Hmm. And that was helpful. And I have it. I've kind of stuck with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And I was, as you were talking about that, it would be fun to have uh, an economist's take on Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you know, what systems are out there? It would be interesting to see an in-depth discussion of coin systems and values and uh, different types of trading, because that, that can really add a lot of flavor to your world very quickly. Maybe this country over here doesn't have money. Maybe they trade in livestock or right. ideas even, you know. You <laughs> information exactly that is the currency of the day here i know this thing and therefore i have riches that you don't Uh, that's you get into some fun areas very quickly with that so i heard this the other day it's like like when you get into like money and then encumbrance and then how much can you carry Mm -hmm. and then you know what's a a sleep look like can you actually recover from a, a arrow wound after sleep and I was talking about that the other day with a group and um, one of the dungeon masters mentioned there are different kinds of art, right? There's realistic art and then there's impressionist art. And the question is, are we trying to create a realistic world building experience? Is this an impression of a fantastic experience? Right. And, and I think, I think we would, most people would agree. Most DMs would agree like, no, we're trying to create a fantastic experience. Therefore, there is going to be some suspension of belief mm-hmm. in order to play the game. Right. It's sometimes it's just be, it's just like, well, find any joy in counting gold pieces. And I really don't. <laughs> I, it's so much so that a lot of times if a player says like, well, I want to buy this, I'll just, I've, I've tried to develop a system where I can do wealth checks based on your financial status. So therefore it is more likely probable that you could afford this um, thing, whatever you're looking for. And that way we're not keeping track of gold pieces. So uh, if you're, you got a monk, a barbarian and a ranger, the monk comes from a noble house. And I'm like, it's very likely that you would be able to just go into an average hotel and get a, with no challenge at all. Um, At least gold wouldn't be the challenge. Uh, But if you are a hermit living out in the wilderness and you tried to get, you know, go into a party and there's a cover charge, well, then I might say, oh no, you, you can't afford that. Yeah. You need to produce some some other option besides paying for it because you just don't have the money. Right. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting idea. And then certainly as a character accrues wealth over the course of an adventure, that becomes easier. Uh, but uh, yeah, having that as a starting point, I think is an, an interesting way based on background to, uh, to allow characters entry into various aspects of life. That's, that's good. And I know there's a lot of kickback right now on people with role-playing and video games about being broke (laughs) in real life and in the game uh, and how uh, upsetting that can be for somebody. Uh, Yeah. I've turned that on its head. I think I've, I may have told you about this in the past, but I I once played a very, very informal, no paper involved whatsoever, not even really a character, but we just pretended 
like my character had unlimited funds mm-hmm. and he presented situations and I would just say, okay, if I had no concern about money whatsoever, here's what my character would do to improve the world. And mm-hmm. it was, it was incredibly liberating. Uh, mm-hmm. And I found that my inclination anyway was to make improvements to life. And so the town that we started in ended up with a fully functional sewer system, paved streets, repaired houses, you know, all these things that typically when you think of a medieval city, you're probably not thinking of. But it was just fun to, to go through the world building experience with him like that in a very informal mental exercise. We, you know, and that's, that's a very interesting part about world building. Since we're playing with an abstract game, money doesn't mean anything unless it can solve a problem. That's right. Unless it creates a problem. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing for anything, magic, money, influence, social status, making an ally with an NPC, all these things in the world building. I think that's another fun part about being a dungeon master and building the world is to create problems that character resources can solve or at least attempt to. Yeah. That fear of missing out, holding on to resources is, I mean, if you do, that's, that's on you, but there's really no benefit to doing that. And so finding ways to spend that meaningfully within the fantasy world uh, can have a lot of Mm. interesting repercussions. I like it. So yeah, in my, in my kids games, um, I have two table manner rules. When you're playing an RPG, there are two things you cannot hoard information and treasure. Since we're playing a cooperative game, everything Mm. is shared. Uh, I don't ever have to tell that with adults really, but in the kids games, just because a lot of times you get new kids and they want to, for some reason, hoard everything. <laughs> I, I think it's just like, they think they're playing Minecraft or something. It's just, um, but I, I like the idea that um, whatever you decide to do as a player, that is where the adventure lies. So sometimes if the players are hoarding wealth, well, that creates an encounter in which a gold dragon approaches you and says, hey, you, this gold is on my land. You owe me interest. Mm-hmm. Or bandits begin to sniff around your safe house. Or, um, or worse, <laughs> there's a, a, a moral dilemma in which, you know, the only answer is, you know, to save the village, you must liquidate all your funds and assets and give to the poor people um, or, or the world's going to explode and they'll be so sad. So yeah. whatever the players do, if they give money, it creates encounters. If they hoard money, it creates encounters. And that's the part about world building. I feel like cannot be completely static. Um, it, it's got to be interactive. That's right. That's right. And another aspect of growth for the dungeon master, you know, you're constantly monitoring what's going on in this world and what can I do with that? Yeah, so much good to be had from this discussion. For sure. Uh, Do you have any other thoughts about world building in general or anything you want to share about your world? And then we'll get to you how people can find you and what kinds of things you're up to. Uh, So one thing I was was thinking about your game, um, something that I've always appreciated and admired um, is it doesn't feel like you're playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons, meaning there's not much from the the lore of, I guess, Forgotten Realms or whatever that seems to be in your game. When I'm listening to the series, I feel like I'm in a completely different game, even though I recognize the dice roll mechanics. <laughs> um, but that being said, it, it's I think that's been, always, that's been a challenge because I know when I started, I was like, okay, I'm just going to stick with this new idea listening to like the stories of Vardalon was one of my uh, inspirations for, okay, I'm going to develop a world because I want 
Bonsarel to feel like a different world, as if you were reading a book from a different author. Mm. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien has Middle Earth, and it feels very different than, say, the world of Avatar or Harry Potter or any other book, or even like a Conan the Barbarian world. They all feel very different. Um, that's the best way I can say it. It's just a feeling. I had to almost like take, you know, take inspiration from where I could, but then back up and research other inspirational points, or at least, um, you know, we're in the season of Lent, kind of go on like a fast of any kind of influence just to see what intuitively came up in my imagination. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting notion of blocking out inspiration, <laughs> finding time to what, what do I think about this? Right. Uh, because it, I don't know if you listened to our guest appearance a couple of weeks ago, Logan, the world builder that I talked with in that episode, said that he wanted to make sure that he was not being too derivative. And so you run the risk if you do nothing but draw from other people of making just a, a big hodgepodge of other people's ideas. And that's not as fun as what can I do with it? It's, it's, uh, you coming from a music background, it's like somebody doing a cover of a popular song and doing it exactly the same. Yeah, right. And that's a, that's a great example. There really is no new music. The notes are, have always been there. It's just how we arrange that's them. That's right. Um, it's only recently that we have copyright laws anyway. But I think I think as a creator, and I would encourage anybody creating, whether you're writing a book or creating a world as a dungeon master or writing music, your first steps will be copy and paste <laughs> from your heroes. Just like we were when we were children, we learned to walk, talk, think, act like our parents. And that is a very natural and good direction. It's only when you continue to progress as a creator, do you go through that uh, teenage rebellious phase in which you're like, no, I'm not going to be like my heroes anymore. I'm going <laughs> to develop my own thoughts. And, and sadly, I think a lot of creators are tempted to stay there because it feels powerful. Mm -hmm. But then much like in our own experience as people, we finally wise up and suddenly our parents are the most brilliant people in the world. And we come to this interconnectedness with them that raised us and those whom we rebelled against and suddenly find we are now creating something together. And part of it is my own intuition. And part of it is the collective that I've brought into the game. I, and I think that's what I would say to creators. Um, the way out is through. Keep creating, but don't be afraid of each natural phase of creation. Well, that I think that's that's a perfect summation of of the experience. And Jonathan, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Can you tell us a bit about your current projects and where listeners can find you? You can always find my blog at www.sojournersawake.com. I chose this word sojourners because I wanted to evoke the idea of a traveler and we are all sojourning underneath the sun and spending a temporary visit together. And that's what the word sojourner means. Uh, so check me out at sojourners awake. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and then you can listen to the podcast in which I have done a audio drama storytelling podcast of us playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's the same name, Sojourners Awake, and you can find it on your favorite podcasting platform. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We'll include all that contact information in our show notes for this episode. So check it out, Stackers. If you want to find Jonathan on Twitter, you can find him at John Grahar, and we'll include that as well. And uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Stackers, we hope you've enjoyed this. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter, Instagram, and now Discord. You can find that information on our Twitter feed. And we'll see you again here next time at Stack of Dice.